So I got with me uh, my good friend Adam Kuntz. Again, he's professor at Concordia Seminary in, well, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, uh, we're going to, you know, if you've been following, you know that he and I go all over the place. And that's less his fault than my fault. He does go all over the place, but he usually stays on one tack for a bit longer than I do. Uh, So today we're going to try to stay on one tack for a bit. And it's where we started Quite a while ago, uh, the reason you really got on the podcast in the first place was to talk about Ezekiel, and I derailed us pretty fast from whatever I think your agenda was, because your agenda, well, I think you have this idea, and I'm going to put it in in my weird language, but I think think there's something here too, if you can prove it. I I haven't seen this yet, Um, but that Ezekiel as a book is like a a Rosetta Stone for understanding Scripture. So in that, if you understand Ezekiel, you will have the power to understand any book of the Bible from Ezekiel. And that that's your kind of hypothesis, at least. So the reason for that is that when you're thinking about understanding what God says in the Bible, you're dealing with a problem that is actually the opposite of what most people think. Most people think, and this is definitely the tack that apologists for churches that offer to solve all of your problems for you, uh, such as Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, they'll say, look, the Bible is unclear. That's why you need an extra authority to somehow authorize the Bible. This is also the kind of certainty that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons provide people. I agree with Luther that the problem with the Bible is not that scripture is unclear and we're in need of some extra thing to explain it to us. The issue is always the obscurity of the human heart and the human understanding. Think about when Jesus is trying to clear up people's problems with understanding simultaneously what the Bible means and what's going on in the world today in Luke chapter 24. The issue with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus is not that the Bible is unclear about the fact that Christ has to suffer and die and on the third day rise, or that those events have in fact taken place in accordance with prophecy. The issue is them their attitudes, their understandings, and Jesus has to open their minds to understand the scriptures. Ezekiel is, therefore, I'm not trying to be super edgy and just for the sake of a hot take say, it's the key to the whole Bible. Like (laughs) That would be kind of dumb. And it's already been done because dispensationalism (laughs) says that apocalyptic literature is the key to understanding the I really, I'd love to see a book from you called the Ezekiel code. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Right. I mean, at the point where I'm just totally just shilling and trying to get a bunch of money, um, I'll do that. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Um, coming out from Zondervan, uh, this fall. So, um, the, the issue with Ezekiel is that if you are willing to just let the Bible talk to you in the way that it wants to in Ezekiel, some of which is very figurative and relies on your understanding the whole story that came before Ezekiel, Ezekiel and the story that's coming after Ezekiel, and some of which is literal about the persecution that Ezekiel endures at the hands of the elders of Israel and, and the nobles of Israel. Um, when you're, If you are willing to just sit still and let him talk and let him explain things and portray things the way that he's been given, you will be enabled to understand pretty much anything else because Ezekiel is sort of like the, you know, it's like the final boss in the video game. You know what I mean? It's so strange (laughs) and so big and so hard. If you get it, you know, you're fine. You, You got everything else. You unlock everything else. Uh, if you can get Ezekiel. So maybe I will do Ezekiel code. 
um, and I'll market it first as a video game, but then later as a book. Oh, that's good. That's good. <clears throat> it can make it into a language. That'd be even better. <clears throat> Excuse me. The um, <clears throat> How much does one need to go outside of Ezekiel to do what you just said? Like how much beyond the pure text of Ezekiel will I, will I need? I think you need at least the entire story of Israel up to Ezekiel. That's okay. why it's such a test. Because if you're following things such as where does jewelry appear in the Bible before Ezekiel, right? <laughs> why are there jewels, for instance, in paradise, jewels and precious metals? Because those are going to appear in Ezekiel. You have to know why God and when God appears in a cloud. Um, you have to know what the temple was supposed to be for. Um, you have to know the story that God has already told, especially in Genesis about cities, because the destruction of cities is, of course, very important in Ezekiel. So, so, so can you, you real quickly to, you, uh, just do, do one sentence on each of those? Yeah, sure. Jewels, so, clouds, ju- temples, and cities. Okay, Jewels are a sign of God's presence, um, and they appear, they, they just appear. So think about the difference between the only other place that you get really like a good trade in precious metals, not specifically jewels, although they're present as well, in, like, like naturally in the Bible, is with Solomon. Hmm. So people are often, they're often incredulous that Solomon goes astray because he's so wise. Uh, Have you not read the Bible? Do you not understand that wisdom can be its own curse? Hmm. And so Solomon, yes, is very wise. And he's very wise in the the employment of technology in order to accumulate riches and power. Whereas precious metals and jewels, when they are godly, simply appear as in paradise, uh, as in the, the depiction of the cherubim in Ezekiel or in the renovated heavens and earth in the new temple in the new Jerusalem, which is a garden city. That is a city that looks like no other city ever has in Revelation. So when jewels and precious metals are not themselves evil, uh, in fact, they are a sign that you are drawing near to God's presence. Think about the vestments of the priests um, in the Old Testament. But when they are used as a means of the display of power, of the display of wealth, if they're used for really anything other than the worship of God, um, you've, got a, you've got at least a burgeoning problem on your hands. So mm-hmm. think about the way that the Bible talks about how Solomon accumulates this stuff. It's supposed to be impressive, right? He has you know, so much silver that it becomes common in Israel in his day. That's actually a problem. The writer's trying to tell you this is going to be a problem because <laughs> he got this stuff from faraway lands. It wasn't just given solely for the purposes of the worship of the God of Israel. So that's jewelry. Clouds are a sign of God's presence. That goes all the way back to Exodus at the very least. And the glory cloud is what inhabits the place that God is blessing. Um, it's the departure of the glory cloud in Ezekiel that shows you that something is going on uh, that will not be rectified even in the second temple, right? The second hmm. temple never has that glory inhabiting it again, even though that glory proves to be extremely mobile in Ezekiel, uh, even visiting Ezekiel when he's in Babylon. Um, jewelry, clouds, temple. what else? Temple. I'm sorry. I'm... Temple. Temple. So uh, the notion of a temple uh, is not to be thought of as like just an architectural project. This is an issue that goes all the way back to Eden when uh, the real issue is whether or not man and God can live in the same place, whether or not they can be together. And so 
the idea that the temp that the glory deserts the temple that the temple is itself given over to idolatry in Ezekiel because Ezekiel gets these amazing visions of people worshiping other gods inside the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole thing, which is treated as an architectural problem in Ezra and Nehemiah, and then is obviously thought of as a purely architectural problem in, for instance, John's gospel is in fact a holiness problem. That's the basic issue. And whether or not God can have a place where man can meet him um, in holiness and mm. in peace, whether or not God and man can ever be together again. And you make me want to tangent well, there. What's that? You make me want to tangent there. Keep going. Uh, yeah. I'm going to try to keep Jesus, <laughs> Jesus obviously says this is not an architectural problem. This is a problem about the sinfulness of man when he talks about his body being glorified in being crucified in John's gospel and then becoming the place that miraculously, like the temple in Ezekiel, huh. will give forth uh, you know, fluids that are unexpected and abundant and provide. Um, Jesus' body does, at the end of John's gospel, what the temple does at the end of Ezekiel. <laughs> and, and then, then the last thing is cities. And this is that cities are themselves um, problematic, uh, to use a weasel word. Um, at the very least, because they are aggregations of human beings and they're the places where human ambition um, and also human technological expertise supplant provision. So when you see the descriptions of, for instance, um, the land of promise before they go into it, um, they are not given descriptions of the cities that they will build. Uh, Again, think about uh, Solomon's accumulation of military power. Solomon fortifies more cities. He's a better city builder than than almost anyone else. And if you pay really close attention in Kings and Chronicles, you can see that the building of fortified cities actually goes on even after the kingdom split. So that in and of itself, the fact that you have a lot of military power or enough wealth to fortify your cities is not itself actually impressive or noteworthy, not in any kind of divine sense. When you get descriptions of the goodness of the land, they are, uh, they're, they're barely agricultural descriptions. They might even be pastoral descriptions. Um, it's about things flowing and things being provided uh, apart from human effort. So that's the vision of a creation in which God and man can live together in holiness is of a wilderness that provides miraculously. This is also the significance of John the Baptist forsaking what others deem a holy city and dwelling in the wilderness. He's saying something else needs to happen here. Um, and he lives uh, upon what the land yields. So agrarianism comes to mind then a little bit in that, uh, again, is another one of those many topics that we could chase. Um, where you had me wanted to go tangent was when you talked about us having a holiness problem. Mm-hmm. And I know you'd mentioned in that other text he sent me, uh, justification as the chief article Mm -hmm. and maybe without going into any, any too nuanced debates about that. Mm -hmm. Holiness is pretty chief too. So can we at least try to say what we mean when we say chief? I think by chief article, we don't mean more true or even maybe more centered than everything else. I don't know. What do you think? By chief article, we mean, um, It's an image, and if we don't have an education in classics, it's really hard to understand Lutheran theology because Lutheran theology presumes this stuff really up until, I don't know, the 1950s. So um, 
uh, chief means in, in an image of kind of a, a logical body of doctrine, um, this is the one that is, as it were, the head. It's, it does not at all mean only. Um, and uh, when we're talking about justification as the chief article, we're saying that if this is gone, none of the rest of it makes any sense in the same sense that a body with no head makes any sense. It doesn't mean that there's nothing else in the body. And it doesn't mean that that's the only place that you can get sick. You can only get a head cold, uh, but you're never in danger of getting your foot chopped off, right? So uh, if someone's trying to chop my feet off, then I'm going to defend my feet, um, even though they're not attacking my head. Hmm. Uh, when we're talking about holiness, justification and holiness are, of course, related. And holiness, as the confessions recognize, has a broad sense in which really the entire gospel is contained. That's what the confessions call sanctification in the broad sense. The narrow sense is usually what we're talking about when we say sanctification or holiness. And that's, of course, distinct from justification. Um, but it is not separable. That is that people who are justified are also uh, called to be and are, in fact, sanctified by God's grace. Um, how not to abstract this from Christ's blood, I think, is often the challenge. And because People don't understand the Old Testament. They don't understand the New Testament, and therefore they don't understand what God is saying. So to be clear, the fact that the temple uh, is gone away, that God's glory is departed from the temple, and it's no longer a place of provision, means that it's no longer a place in which God gives sacrifice blood to cover his people's sin. That means in theological terms that justification is no longer available. Therefore, also holiness is no longer available, right? Because the holiness is dependent on the prior justification. Um, and, Which is dependent uh, upon the atonement. So the whole, the whole right? land is polluted. Go ahead. And the prior justification depends upon the atonement, right? It the does. atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice does not depend upon original sin, but doesn't make any sense without original sin. Original sin has no solution without the doctrine of election. And, and, and very quickly, you find that there's, it's not that justification is the platform on which we build our knowledge of God. And that's, that would be where I have heard that term chief article used, mm -hmm. right. as if to mean that right. justification is the platform of all other theology. And I think as the LCMS, that is the last 40 years of our conundrum and just nonsense. And, and, and especially our preaching. Yes. Yes. Um, as opposed to say our fights over whether the Bible's true, which is its own, right. its own thing. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that, that's really good. Um, I, I continue to have a, a problem with our English use of what I can only believe in the German and the Latin or whatever was more clear. Our use of justification and sanctification as terminology in the broad is incredibly sloppy and I think damages the real chief article because, and, and please chop my head off. Um, <laughs> I don't think the chief article is justification by itself. I think the chief article is justification by grace through faith alone, not just the concept of justification. And that, that by faith alone, if you read the text of the article, article four, mm -hmm. is the, can I use a really narrow term, perlocutionary force of the article. It, it, is, it is the substance of what they're trying to say. Their beef is not just justification, but right. that it's faith alone. Right. And in that regard, sanctification, justification, they're playing in the same ballpark of a foundation of faith alone. And so, yeah, if justification by faith alone falls, everything's going to just go kaput, 
right? But we run around talking about sanctification as if it's a form of justification, as if it is justification by works. So my sanctification is when I live a justified by works life so you can know that holiness is active in my life somewhere else. And, And I think that's just not good English. The good English is that I am justified by grace alone in Christ. And so as a justified man, I will do just actions. And so I will live a justified before my neighbor life as much as I am able. In the same way, I am sanctified strictly by the proximity of the the holiness of Jesus Christ to me that does not destroy me, but cleans me. And so also I will set myself apart from the world around me by by action, by thought, by by devotion, all these things. And I don't know. I don't think yeah. that, that avoids the debate, but the debate's not between justification and not justification. It's, it's between works and faith, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the real chief head article. And one last thing, head versus yeah. center, right? I love, though, if we're going to talk about it, to hear it as head versus center, because those are two different metaphors. And one is biblical, and the other, I mean, fullness of time, you get some central stuff going on, but it's not like centered is the way that the Bible talks about the way we would think about no, the structure no, no, of Christianity. No, no. and I, no I, 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 I never like when people talk about being balanced or being centered, because that doesn't that is to misunderstand how Satan attacks doctrine yeah. or even individual human beings. That is that it's not like you have to keep a balance. Um, it's that he stages assaults against one thing or the other. So if you said, well, we have to balance or we have to keep intention. The idea that the Bible is an errant, but also this other thing, it's like, no, that's not how this works. Uh, it's a body, and sometimes he's attacking my immune system, and sometimes he's attacking my lungs, and sometimes he's attacking, you know, my my left pinky finger or something. Those things have to be defended at any given time um, because they're a body and they're a whole. And if one part gets cut off, there's going to be other problems elsewhere that I can't even anticipate. So the notion of like balance or tension or centeredness is not, I don't like these sort of like physics metaphors for how doctrine works. Hmm. Um, Because when scripture talks about doctrine, it uses biological metaphors. Sound doctrine, the same word in Greek you would use for health. Health, right, right. So uh, when we're talking about justification, um, we have to remember that as Paul begins to lay out the fullness of justification in Romans in a really in the most systematic, I don't mean systematic theological, but I mean, he lays it out in the most, you know, expansive way. His theme verse for that is from Habakkuk, and it's from a time of crisis in Israel, when the prophet wonders, uh, shall anyone be saved? It's a lament that comes up over and over again in Ezekiel. And the divine answer is that the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, And that means the entirety of his life is characterized by faith, not only his justification, but also, you know, later on in Paul, like Romans five through eight, as well as the discussion of election and the nations in nine through 11, is that the entirety of life is characterized by faith. Faith, uh, so, faith, right. which is the assurance of things not seen, right? right. So it, yeah. it, is, it is characterized by a belief that what God has said is true precisely when you don't see it. A right. belief in things that cannot be proven. And by nature, then, is impossible to have, but then also by supernature is the gift of God alone. And again, right. uh, to say to say that's the chief article, to know that that Christianity's se- central head reality <laughs> is that Christ alone 
raises us from the dead and that that resurrection is to believe his words. Yeah. Not to have my body not die, but to believe his words and that that has already taken place. I'd call that central too to the Christianity. I mean, I'm going to try to get right. back to chief and head, right. but I'd call that 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 the chief article and I and do it without fear of being misunderstood in the moment unless it was misunderstood by LCMS people who thought I wasn't talking about justification somehow. <laughs> you know? Uh I, I, I've been thinking about something that we've talked about several times or have noted at least, uh, and that is why there is such a generational um, division on whether or not it's okay to talk about the third use of the law, whatever terminology hmm. you want to use for that. Hmm. And I, I've thought a lot about this, and I, so take it for what it's worth. I think that the reason that we began to talk about justification by faith as if it's sort of the only reality of Christianity or at least it's the only thing that Lutherans talk about in their preaching. And the reason that this happened in all kinds of Lutheran pulpits, regardless of the official affirmation of the preacher or denomination, is because it was okay to do because the attacks in the United States over the past 50 or 60 years on Christianity have generally not been on our capacity to say that Jesus Christ is the savior. Now that is changing. Um, but the attacks have generally been on the doctrine of the law. And therefore, you can cave on that or you can go silent. You can go dark on parts of that. You can stop talking about certain aspects of God's law, but you can retain something that does sound distinctively Lutheran. Because I've thought a lot about, for instance, um, and th this, is, this is a little bit in the weeds. I don't want to chase it too far. But something that I've noted frequently is that the people who studied under Vanner Ehlert who, had, who was German and had big issues with the terminology of talking about the law. The, the Germans who studied under him did not tend to go in what we would describe either theologically or politically in an antinomian direction. That is that they did not go in the direction and Ehler himself doesn't when he speaks about ethics of saying, you know, look, like basically do whatever you want, but generally I'm going to align myself with leftist political causes. In the United States, it's usually the opposite. Um, you know, the, the generation that leaves the Missouri Synod, for instance, in the 60s and 70s, also is pretty politically united, not entirely, but pretty politically uh, aligned uh, with sort of the, the left uh, in the United States as of the late 1960s. I don't think that's an accident. I think people's theology and their politics are generally pretty intimately related. I think you also see that in Ezekiel where... Uh, it is the people who have a stake in everything going on the way it always has, who persecute Ezekiel, who's saying, look, things will not continue going on as they always have. The people who had a skin in the game, right? Yeah. And to lose it, <laughs> right? To right? bring all things back to Tlaib. Um, I, I jotted a bunch of notes, and one of them is a, uh, a concept that's been rattling around in my head on and off and it keeps coming in and out and i think it's tied to broken by the way so broken is a treatise on uh the threefold really it's seven rules but you can boil them all down to the first three the threefold uh attack of uh, mysticism rationalism and um uh moralism uh legalism whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. and the you know I, I wrote that as a just I knew Caberly was awesome. I was like, we need Caberly in English, like for real. And so I, so <laughs> better I, English. yeah, right, yeah, better right. English. So, so that's what I did. But now, you know, later, it's not like I've grown past the theology. It continues to teach me. 
um, you know, I don't, I don't like those terms as much. Uh, mysticism, rationalism, uh, moralism, these are, these are idolatries of something that is actually a created substance, I think. And, and it's part of the creative substance of humanity. And the Greeks picked up on this. They had more words, so I, I could be wrong, but I really think it's these three because it, it keeps showing up in ways it ties to the rest of our theology. In, in the way that uh, those three, as I mentioned already, tie to hands, head, and heart, or excuse me, hands, yeah, hands, mouth, and heart, um, mm-hmm. tie to mysticism, rationalism. And, and so, so there's ways in which this ties to our humanity. And the Greeks would talk about pathos, ethos, and logos. Mm-hmm. And pathos is your is your your emotion, your your zeal. It's good, right? Um, but it's also mysticism is the worship of pathos, and and uh, logos and knowledge, truth. This is rationalism worships logos, and then um, you know don't think don't think Jesus the logos just yet, right? All right, and then um, and then moralism worships ethics, ethos, right? It's right. Th- so it's right there. These three things: pathos, ethos, logos. And what really struck me about your description of both the the alert conundrum, because I believe he was a faithful Christian and wanted to be a faithful Lutheran, but some of his language, because of things he did not see or battles he fought, then got right. to be used by heterodoxy. I'm sure I've done this and will do this too. Most, of, <laughs> right. you know, if right. no one yeah, else, right. if no one right. comes along and cleans me up the way they cleaned up Luther, you know, it's it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, thankfully, I'm not that Im- impacting either. Um, but uh, uh, it would seem to me that the alert conundrum and the and the seventy three seventy four St. Louis conundrum, Edom Seminary, whatever, they retained a Lutheran pathos. That's precisely yeah, what they had. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They felt Lutheran. They looked Lutheran. It it right. smells Lutheran, but they left the ethos behind. Yeah. And 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 they did it by leaving the logos behind too. Like directly in seventy three, right. the logos right. was directly attacked. I would say in in Ehlers world, it was the ethos that was more attacked than the logos. They weren't really fighting over scriptures and inerrancy yet, although he may have been on the forefront of that those movements. I don't know. Yeah, he actually go ahead, go ahead and finish. And then just I, that I, wanna... I think those that that circle of three things. I'm convinced this is a platform for understanding a lot of stuff. And if you look at our movements of particularly, where do we go from heterodoxy to heresy? And we step from orthodoxy, all three of these things aligning, to heterodoxy, two of these things ultimately aligning. And as right. Lutherans, we can do that while retaining our dogmatic verbiage. Right, right. <laughs> the, ver- th- the verbiage I, I, doesn't I say think this. It's, I think it's crucial to know that Ehlert denies the verbal inspiration of Scripture, and he's actually the source for that to come into Eastern Lutheranism through Charles Jacobs, who is his first English translator and teaches at the Philadelphia Seminary, um, you know, uh, the late lamented Philadelphia Seminary, which is basically going to, you know, I mean, it, it is actually no more. Hmm. What, what, I, what I see is that usually Logos appears to be corrupted first. However, in places where Logos is present, so the generation that you know, walks out in 1974 was raised with logos. Mm -hmm. If you read the Missouri Synod's doctrine in the 1930s, it's not exactly going way off the rails or something. I mean, the system that produces Yaroslav Pelikan, who's writing his papers in Latin and scoffing at the profs who can't read it, like they love their logos, man. They do. They do. But what, what I think, what I think you're right to see that when those, when, when someone's, when someone's human emotion and uh, also his sense of what he's doing in life 
uh, when those are poorly integrated, hmm. logos is generally insufficient to move human beings. Yeah. So what we're not talking about here is that, oh, the Missouri Synod needed to like revise its doctrine radically or something. It was that uh, the, the task of keep of holding church together and of propagating the gospel involves things along with logos. Hmm. Um, so when you think about how Paul talks about sound doctrine, remember that when he talks about doctrine, he means not only uh, what we think of as the logical constructs that scripture gives us, the propositional truths uh, that we study usually in, you know, confirmation class or a seminary classroom. When Paul talks about sound doctrine, he also talks about how people deal with each other and how they think about what their lives are for. Right. You know, teach older men to live in this way, teach older women to live in that way. All that is also sound doctrine in Scripture. But then and, you're, you're, you're pushing into, I would say, a little bit there. That's also the ethos of what Scripture has to give right. us. Right. And so if I were to critique the LCMS right now, I would say we are idolizing the Logos to the expense of the other two. And yet there is a movement amongst us that I would say is legalizing, legalizing, uh, idolizing the pathos, uh, yeah. the revival concept, the idea that we should be alive again and not dead. I mean, that's all good, sure. but they're doing it by saying the logos is the problem. Let's get rid of the logos and just have more pathos. Right. And in the right. middle, we have both groups have rejected the original ethos of the LCMS, particularly when it comes to marriage and children. And we say we haven't because we're against homosexuality, but oh, do you just go look at what we taught 50 years ago? We know, have completely 180'd. And, and so our ethos is gone and we're fighting two sides, logos and pathos saying that's the thing. And it's like, mm, guys, right. hello, you know, but then what does Ezekiel have to say to us in this? Right. Okay. Let's, let's just zoom all the way back. And I want you to tell me, we, we've gone through chapters one through three at some point somewhere. <laughs> it's not yeah. so different. He's on, he's on a, a, a water bank, just he might as well be on a boat in the middle of nowhere. Like yeah. his, he's a priest. Right. He has no job. He has no God. He has no king, but one who's made him a slave. Right. What can he do? So whatever you think your life is right now, it's not as bad as Ezekiel's was. <laughs> right. Uh, the first thing that happens, and I think when you're reading prophetic books to understand, is that prophecy is a crisis, first of all, for the prophet. That logos is is fundamental to being human. Uh, logos, ethos, and pathos are all there. Logos is actually fundamental because logos is what generates your sense of where everything is heading, or where you've been, or or who you are, or what you mean. And so, based on logos, that's how you're interpreting what you feel and also how you're behaving. So the crisis that always hits the prophet first is the fact of revelation, and in Ezekiel, it's especially terrifying. Because that revelation is, first of all, a revelation of a God who, in possessing chariots, the like of which Ezekiel has never seen, actually turns out to be more militarily powerful than any king. In now, that's most, going most, to be in good most, news. In the most epic and awesome kind of way ever. Just, just you know, hat tip, <laughs> we need a movie. It's so cool. But anyway, right, go on. right. It's going to be good news, but at first, it's, it's merely terrifying. Hmm. The other, uh, among the other crises for Ezekiel is the fact that um, because of who this God has revealed himself to be, Ezekiel is going to experience some of the same intense sense of separation from his own people that Paul has, for instance, in Romans 9, when he thinks about his own people, the Jews being cut off, right? Or I feel this way about, you know, um, poor rural whites. That's 
That's where I came from. When I think about them being cut off from the gospel, it breaks my heart. <laughs> that is where Ezekiel is. He's thinking, are you going to cut off the entirety of my people? He's like, I know they're wicked. <laughs> I know things are really bad, but, but does the fact that you, ha- you actually have shown yourself to be one who will punish sin, does that mean that everyone's going to be gone? I mean, Moses is in the same place. Abraham is in the same place when he considers the destruction yeah. of potentially everything. Elijah sitting there, you know, I'm the last one, might as well kill me. You know, it, it's a common experience and it's common enough that we should realize it's probably the constant experience of, of humanity right. and <laughs> right. of faithful Christianity. Right. So if you're paying attention at any time, you're going to have it look like it's out of control and going to fall apart. Yep. And the ascended king would beg to differ and Ezekiel can teach you, can teach you how. Um, I just want to pull out of that and emphasize you using the word separation, and it wasn't a negative sense there in regards to separated from the gospel, but those who are in the gospel are separated from those who are separated from the gospel. And in one sense, then, holiness is is that. Yeah. Is the definition of holiness, is to be separated. And in right. one sense, that's also what God's going to teach Ezekiel, because like he's outside of what it looks like he should be in. Wait, God, right. I thought it was going to be this way. And he's right. going to say, oh, no, 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 you're right beside me, actually. And I've left there, um, because holiness is bigger than just a uh, the proximity to a temple. Unless that temple's the body of Jesus, which doesn't have to be in one time or place or on one mountain. That's all John right. 3, 4, 5, right? So. Right. So, but all that connected to holiness being separation and, and our talk earlier about sanctification. When we talk about sanctification, do you think about separation? Probably not. And you probably should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's kind of my beef with that word again. And I, I just, it's not a crusade against using it, but we have to redefine the heck of that word if we're going to get some, some uh, water carried by it, I guess. Um, we got, we still got 15 minutes here. So, so he, he's, he's there, he's wondering what's going on. Um, and the, and, and the comparative to say, well, every time and place, but if where you are today, whoever you are that's listening, where I am today, I just described my frustration with my own church body because we know what we ought to know, but we don't. And, we, and we're arguing over it and we left behind things and we won't even deal with those things. And the world seems to be falling apart. Like, uh, are you going to abandon us, God? It's just the same question. Yeah. Have you really left us like this? Is this really what it's going to look like? Um, and then, so what, is, what does God do then? Right. What does God do to Ezekiel besides be like, dude, you got no idea. <laughs> right. Right. He, d- he does have no idea. But th- the fact that he is mightier than any earthly king means also that he will keep for himself a remnant. Now, this is portrayed like really beautifully in Ezekiel because he talks about cities being destroyed and those who are fat in the land being destroyed. And the remnant in Ezekiel goes up to the mountains. And on the mountains, they're mourning over their sin. He describes the, the sound of their voice like the sound of doves. But those are the very ones who, be, who will be preserved, right? Um, elsewhere in the Bible, those are called the quiet in the land um, or uh, sometimes simply the poor. Uh, it's also how and why Jesus's proclamation on mountains and the Gospels is so important. Can and I ask there- you? It's there that he feeds them. I'm, I'm going to to Beatitudes for that reason. Um, when you say the poor, you're referencing that in the Old Testament, the phrase the poor can become a technical term for the faithful Christian, effectively. Mm-hmm. So that right. when Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor, he doesn't poor. mean what the Methodists want you to think. That you got to go give money to the shelter downtown. 
right. he's talking about those waiting for the word of God to come true. It doesn't mean don't help the poor people downtown. And it's not what I said, right? But it's a different thing that Jesus is talking about. Correct. Yeah. Because if you, if you, you see like in Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. In Matthew, it's the poor in spirit. Well, how do these two things not conflict? They don't conflict because it has to do with a certain attitude toward possessions and a certain willingness to give them up or to go without them, not with a certain amount more or less, but with a certain attitude towards them, which signifies that you have here no continuing city, a la Hebrews. Um, those who are fleeing were not necessarily in one tax bracket or another in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. Uh, they are people who are willing to go to the mountains if that's what it takes to preserve the gospel, um, to put it in New Testament terms. Um, they're willing to go where they need to go that the gospel may continue living. Now, the fleeing to the mountains that he sees, this is literal or symbolic, or I guess it was both around 70 AD, but, but it how, was, sh yeah, right. how, yeah. how should we take it now? We should, <laughs> well, should I go uh, into Appalachia with my firearms and form a city? Probably. I'm going to say probably not quite like that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, West Virginia's state motto is Montani Semper Liberi. Oh, there you uh, go. Because it is just ask the Afghans. It's easier to stay free if you live in the mountains. It's, it's just empirically true. But um, no, I mean, in, in Ezekiel's time, it is both literally and for our entire time, uh, the entire time that the church still needs the Bible until the last day, it is at least symbolically true. Because what it means is that you go to a place where earthly power cannot reach you. And it's a place of last resort, but it's in the place of last resort, right? It's, it's when Elijah goes into the wilderness that he's fed there right? It's when you go to the mountain and all you have is Jesus, that Jesus feeds you. So even if, you, if you're not literally going to a mountain because you live in the absolute middle of Kansas, you are still going to the mountain when you're going to Jesus. Right. Which I think would push us back to that glory conversation earlier about the cloud. Oh, I, I meant to say this earlier too. So much of what you did, listener, so much of what he did there with jewels, cloud, temple, cities— is what's technically called biblical theology, if you're going to right. go study it. And it's, it's topical, you know, an idea that gets used more than once across the Bible builds a character. Now, people who use concordances with their English Bible, they they figured this out. That's what they're using their concordance for. The problem is, is that a concordance can really lead you astray by not giving you all the places you should go, um, because it just doesn't translate into that right word, or giving you words that were translated as the same word that aren't, in fact, the same word at all. So you got to be a little careful about it. But when you learn about things like, say, the use of clouds by God throughout the Bible to both show his presence and his hiddenness at the same time, um, well, then you can just kind of say whenever a cloud shows up, it's probably kind of important if you know if John's right. going to tell you about yep. one. Um, and so <laughs> the same goes for mountains then. We haven't talked about it, but yet here, but, but mountains yeah. as not as a single mountain and as the mountains, but here, you know, to, to just jump over a whole bunch of stuff. Yep, Ultimately, sure. the mountain of God is Mount Zion in Calvary. It is the cross. It is the resurrection. It is the body of Jesus, the city, which you were talking about earlier. And so to flee to the mountain, at least symbolically and typologically, must be to flee to the body and blood of Christ. It simply must be what that is. Um, I think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It is written on the mount; it shall be provided. Right. So it you is a call. Put that over like your chancel. It's a call to return, not to say doctrine, unless by doctrine you mean Jesus. You mean the words of Jesus. Um, it is not to dismiss logos, pathos, or ethos, but to believe that all of them are justified 
in what he has said, and then to believe what he has said and restore and redeem that life of humanity. And so the mountain idea, that's really cool. So fleeing to the mountains, the poor being the faithful Christian. I meant to ask, um, can you give me one of the places in the Old Testament which talks that way about the poor? Like a, a place for establishing that? I know that's a, kind of a narrow thing off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, if you just think about it, like narratively, when they come back uh, from exile in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, there are people there the poor who the have remained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those people who have remained have in the Northern Kingdom kind of mixed with the people that were imported, the different peoples imported by the empire. And that's the genesis of the Samaritans. But there are people who remain who simply remain because it's like they're not they're not that important, right? Remember that exile does not occur to everyone or even nearly everyone in the Southern Kingdom. Um, and so the poor in the land are those who are left waiting for the redemption of Israel. So you mean when, the, when they were going along looking for workers, they might have been looking at their teeth <laughs> and leaving some behind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's harsh. It's worldly. And it's the way people do it when they want to win, when they, yeah. want to, when, when they want to dominate and be tyrants and have control. Take the good stock, leave the bad. And they treat humans like chattel. I mean, this is what right. it is. Yeah, they do. Right. And and they, they cut off the ruling classes of these kingdoms. In destroying their elites, they destroy the kingdom yeah. as a political entity. But that doesn't destroy, in a biblical sense, <clears throat> the, the ethnos, that, that, that group, which is constituted by a certain group of people in a place that are related to each other. The, the nation is not destroyed, even though the kingdom is destroyed. No. But so, so on a wild hair there, though, right? So yeah. Fleet of the Mountains in, in West Virginia, but how is West Virginia ever going to overthrow the UN? I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? Uh, and so um, there, there is a, there's a limitation there. Yeah? Well, well because, because biblically, the vision is not that every ethnos uh, gets its own kingdom to rule over. Hmm. Um, Think about Jesus's basic indifference to the major political question of his own ethnos in his own place and time. Jesus does not rule definitively on what the Jewish people's relationship to the Roman Empire needs to be. <laughs> it is because it's not that these things are unreal or that you don't have an ethnic group or something. It's because political questions are only of relative importance in relationship to the gospel. So Jesus's main concern is that every ethnos would be reached by someone preaching the gospel. That's what it means to go to all nations. It doesn't just mean nation states. It means right. all these different people groups all over the world. It just means that nobody is left behind, even the hick who you didn't think was worth bringing along as a slave. Like they're, in right. fact, the most exactly. necessary part of the body. Right. Um, fleeing to the mountains, again, is an idea symbolically uh, being like, okay, it's a defensible position. Uh, if you can get, you usually can find water, um, which is a good thing. Uh, food might or may not be available. You can live there, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. Um, as an image for the Christian life, you're going to find food there. It's not going to be that bad. You know, your needs are met, but it's going to be hard. Right. And then this idea that I can, I can leave it. I can flee to the mountain. I can, I can have less than I do. That is a concept of discipleship is really something. I, I don't know how to even begin poking at that one without just sounding like I'm pointing fingers at people or shouting about Americanism or something. Right? Sure. But I, I think you have to start by understanding that there, there is very often a, a, an explicit, direct economic cost to being a disciple yeah. because I cannot build a kingdom. I cannot build a military power, even a regional one, let alone an imperial one. If I'm living in the mountains, uh, you go to the mountains in order to be left alone. 
You don't go there to get rich. You build your castle there after you conquer the world when you want to get away from having to run it. <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, just the powers in Ezekiel's day, uh, a, a military power always depends on an enormous amount of arable land, which generally has to be flat and well watered. Right. Yeah. And uh, you can't build such a thing if you live in the mountains. Hmm. Um, so the, the, fl- the flight to the mountains is both a flight away from control, right? But it's also a flight that says, I'm willing to accept that cost in order to have the peace requisite to the preservation of Israel. Hmm. That's amazing. I've never, I have never thought of global political history in terms of mountains as establishments of empire. I've always, you know, geography has always been interesting to me because I can observe even in my, every local town I've ever lived in, how geography creates where the poor and the rich live. Mm-hmm, and it's just, mm-hmm. it just is always the same. You can study right. it and you can see why. Right. It's actually to keep people away. Usually the rich live where you, you can't get as easily. Um, and so it is the beginning of this, I'm going to protect my empire thing. And I, and so I knew that geography existed as a barrier. Um, and I, I was just talking, I think two days ago with my wife about how much the Alps effectively meant the difference between reformation and no reformation for, for a time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're North of the Alps, you went Lutheran or Calvinist. And if you're South, you stayed Catholic. And it's just, it's just what happened and had a lot to do with where the armies could go mm-hmm. and how, how you could get in there and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I had a reason to go off on that tangent. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get back to it now, um, about, about geography. Oh, oh, mountain kingdoms. Yeah. And, and so then... There are no mountain kingdoms in history. There, you have river valley kingdoms instead, and yet our king says, "Flee to the mountains." <laughs> well, and he he and also you find he Mount also, Zion. Yeah, he also teaches. He also teaches from mountains. Um, he feeds on mountains. He's crucified on a mountain. He ascends from a mountain. Yeah. He's not trying to build a people that is outwardly powerful. He's trying to build a people that stays together. Huh. And the means, the means of that is, is by means of his teaching, also of his way of life, his ethos, also by his way of portraying how you should think about people and the world, his pathos, right? How, what kind of a person is Jesus Christ? Um, that is how we hold together in the same way that mountain people holds together by simply remaining there right. <laughs> and not right. having anything of value to be taken and defending themselves when people try and come to take the little that they do have. Hmm. Hmm. So, so we got off on the mountains to tie it into um, kind of Ezekiel's hope or yeah. what he's told is going to be sufficient in all this. Um, what chapter was that? Is that two when he's got that? Well, uh, the, we... the mountains is in specifically chapter seven. Those who survive, this is seven sixteen. Those who survive will escape and beyond the mountains, like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning each for his iniquity. So, in terms of structure, up to that point, one to seven yeah. for Ezekiel. Um, how many broad chapters? I'm not talking about chapter one, two, three, but like if you had to create real chapters for the book right now, right, right, right. What's the and you're making big ones, so the whole book fits into like six of these, maybe or seven or whatever. Ooh, you know, okay. Well, or or twelve or fifteen, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I, I would know. go. I would go one to three is about the prophet, and then four or five is about Jerusalem's evil specifically, and then in six, seven you shift from Jerusalem to the mountains, right? So you track with the movement of God's people out of the corrupt city into the mountains. And it's, it's not, again, that the mountains are like magical. It's just that you, you're not going to get rich and idolatrous there. 
idolatry is just harder to get yourself into out there. Whereas in, in Jerusalem, they're still living well enough that they're still worshiping the works of their hands and they're under the delusion that the Lord does not see them. Okay. I'm, hold on. Uh, I'm writing. Can you keep talking? <laughs> yeah. So, so once you go into the mountains after that, then he shifts back into this kind of like drone tour of the temple that he's taken on. And you get to see the different people worshiping in the different multitude of ways. Yeah, because I want to get into that. That yeah, sure. I mean, uh, not, not this time. Let's let's, you got to go story mode on some of that. Cause that stuff gets so curious to me, but well, you just did one through seven as three separate chapters, but right. what you have then is the crisis of the prophet, and this would be all prophets, but also Ezekiel. But to understand, the right. crisis of every prophet is the evil, the awareness of the evil of what should be good. And then also the revelation of the good which cannot be evil. And that that forms a law gospel structure, a preacher law gospel structure. You could do stuff with that as well, but that chapters one through seven all fit into that. And you could, you could head it the crisis of the prophet and his preaching. And, and, and it summarizes the entire thing there. I think it's incredibly helpful. And it, it, it introduces us to those, um, those symbolic concepts, which are going to come to play in the rest of the book. Um, so if I, I think that that's a good summary, so I just want to throw that out there and uh, yeah, at least sure. get your affirmation on it. Right. That, that was a, that captured. Yeah, what you were no, I think down. that's good. And I think it's also, um, guys ask this question all the time in classes is like, how do I work with law and gospel? Cause I, they realize that I don't want to do the wooden, what like David Schmidt calls the law then gospel sermon, which mm-hmm. is so much of what we hear. And the way to avoid that is basically by doing enough biblical homework that it doesn't, that you're actually building your, your preaching and your teaching around these themes, these images, these statements, these ideas. And then as you apply those things, then you apply them in distinguishing law from gospel. But you don't start by saying, I'm going to map law and gospel right. onto everything yeah. and ignore the jewels and the clouds and the mountains. What we did with law and gospel is what science did with um, everything until quantum <laughs> physics. Uh, and and believe that if we could get it to its smallest pieces, we could manipulate it infinitely and indefinitely. And... As a result, we dissected the scriptures like one would a, a, a dead frog, yeah. uh, as opposed to drink and imbibe the scriptures as would, one would uh, stories of yore and, right. and the lore of eternity yeah. and, and the history of wisdom. That's very different from the the fifth enclitic particle of this sentence. Now, nothing against the enclitic particle and the need to yeah. know that at some point, but cart, horse, and that kind of thing, forest, trees— um, yeah, respond. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, uh, if you're, if you're listening to this and you, and you are a preacher, I would recommend you go back and you read David Schmidt's article, freedom of form. It's from 1999. So it's fairly old now, but I wish more people even knew that it existed because he talks about, he basically thinks that the reason we our preaching has gotten into such a rut and it's not just our preaching. It's also ELCA preaching. I've heard Wells sermons like this. I've heard ELS sermons like this. It's kind of a modern Lutheran problem. He thinks it's sheer pragmatism because we took law and gospel and we just used it as a sermon outline because it's easy to do. Now, it, it so often really warps the text to say law, then gospel, but it's because it's easy to do. And especially as our sermons got shorter. Right. So Walther assumes that an average sermon is 45 minutes as our sermons get down to, you know, 10, 12, maybe 15. You can actually do law, then gospel. 
if you're going for 45 minutes, you're going to have to mix it up a lot more. <laughs> so uh, it's a great article, Freedom of Form from 99 and Schmidt. Um, I, th I think he still teaches at St. Louis. I'd be, uh, my, my hunch, I, I can't say as I have field tested this, but I think it's bigger than just Lutheran circles. Um, I'm sure there are homiletic communities that do not fall into this problem, mm -hmm. but they're not Anglo. Um, and in the Anglo community, which has studied a thing called homiletics, that's where you run into this problem. And what I think it is, is that the study of homiletics is, is in fact, uh, the study of the content under the guise of the study of the style. And then, then changes the content by trying to talk about types of style and whatnot. And, um, by being so hyper-scholastic, uh, we just don't even really see that we've lost, like you would never teach storytelling the way you teach homiletics in a million years it's just wrong you know you're like the whole goal is to get away from the text homiletics like the whole goal is to get away from the text and it's, it's just weird i'm not saying that i i think that you know i'm right about how i preach necessarily i might do that's yeah. why i do it yeah. but um there's something there's something there that's bigger than just camerer although camererism i think is is the way that a lot of lutherans have applied it and if you know who he is you should throw that book away uh, and, and never, never use it again, uh, or let anyone do so. So I, I'm with you on that too. The Schmidt article, can you say the name of that again? Yeah, it's called freedom of form and it was in Concordia journal in 1999. Okay. Concordia. Yeah. Who has one of those lying around? I, I don't know. You can, you can probably find it on the internet. And if, sure the sem has it if too. you're an LCMS pastor, you're, your seminary, whichever one it was, can get it for you. Oh, well, you, you can you can contact the other one if you want. Yeah, or either one can get it for you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I, yeah, nice. I have a little better relationship there. Do you know? Do you know this that that whenever I go to, to Concordia Fort Wayne, and anything is printed out with my name on it from your computer system, it says Doctor in front of it. <laughs> and I've tried on no less you than have, two two or three you, occasions. I have attempted to remedy this process, and you keep telling me I'm a doctor every time I show up. Did you get like a, one of those like unaccredited like mail-in things? No, or? you guys just okay. did it. I did not apply this. I did not ask for it. I, you just every time I show up, you insist I am. I'm like, I, I guess. Right. If you're a CPH author, you must be a doctor of the <laughs> Well, church, so. now yeah. we want to talk about gatekeepers. That's one of the other millions of things I got on my list for you. I find it interesting. I'm reading this book. Have I recommended this book to you yet? It's called uh, uh, Take It. Oh, shoot, it's way over there. Taking Smart Notes, Aaron's. Um, Something no. RNs. I'll recommend it to you after this. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's marvelous. Um, it got me thinking about uh, crud. No, I lost it. Let's go back. We okay. were, what was the topic we were just on? Law and gospel. No, before, after Preaching. that. Preaching. Mm -mm, mm -mm. We were, we were you, moving. You said, you said homiletics is uh, a subterranean way of talking about <sighs> content when you're saying you're talking about style. No, nah, I was after that too. <laughs> For pity's sake. Gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. There you go. That's it. That's the right direction. Okay. I like this game. Oh, yeah, yeah. And doctors. <laughs> and why I shouldn't have one. Why I shouldn't yeah. have a doctorate. Um, in that book, it, his, his the book, Taking Smart Notes, is all about... Wow, God, it's so deep. It's, it's like it's like getting things done, but then the next level. And so it really is racking a number of my frameworks for, for information management and stuff like that. Okay. Um, the, the weakness of the book is that it's geared entirely towards scholastic writing and it really mm -hmm. has applications far beyond scholastic writing mm -hmm. and he mm -hmm. doesn't see that i don't know how because he's so good at what he's doing it's like how do you not know that this is way bigger than what you're talking about right um maybe he does and he's just got a market um uh 
But one of the things he was talking about was like the path in theory of scholasticism is so that by the time you're a doctor, you've published three books. And I read that the other day and I went, that's kind of funny because I have, and I'm never going to be a doctor for it. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? Well, I, I mean, mean it, it, and, and it's all about gatekeepers. Yeah. It's all about gate. I, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say that if you take broken echo and without flesh, you put them together. I got more than a thesis, man. I got more than a thesis. Give me something. Yeah. So for what, what's up with that? Like, is our scholastic system going to produce that kind of work? Could it? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? So, like, okay, so think about, like, Luther, because mm-hmm. Luther is kind of a crossover figure, right? So he's, he's one of early modern Europe's most popular authors. Yep. Most reprinted, um, including stuff that is basically, like, memes. You know, like, right. his pastoral sure. about, you know, the opposition between Christ and Antichrist is basically just, like, memes with some text. Right. But when Luther. you call the Pope mouse droppings in the pepper... You've stepped over the line of good writing. Right. So Luther comes up inside academia, which is kind of normal at his time in being a guild, right? Uh, Academia is very abnormal now in still being a guild. Hmm. Oh, that's Uh, really good. Thank you. That helps me a lot. Thank you. Whereas everything, like almost every other part of life, including in America, Christian congregations are in a in some kind of market situation. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's why academia is the way it is and is as often irrelevant as it is, because (laughs) the reason that you uh, make the contacts that you do and talk in the way that you do and cite things in the way that you do is for the sake of the guild. First, it's the guild of where you get your degree. And then it's the guild of where you get hired. And throughout it's the guild of the other people who study the same very small thing that you do. Now, the, the specialization is partly because of the money, which we've talked about, the federal student loan program. If you go back to 1930, theologians, as well as English professors, as well as business professors, are much less specialized than they are today because there's much less money available. And the less money you have, the more different things you have to talk about. So if you don't have money to be you know, the guy at your church as a pastor that talks about just the book right. of James. Right, right. Can't do it. Okay. You have to be the pastor that talks about all the books of the Bible. Well, you only have one guy. But if you have more money, maybe eventually you can get to the point where you're the pastor that talks about James and visits the shut-ins. And that's all you do. You do nothing right. else. Right, right, right. But I can't academia see that as can, being... can often afford to specialize. It can. And I, I don't see that as healthy to academia in the long run. No, I don't. I don't either. And as a human being, I don't think specialization is actually good for producing right. people who have balanced logos, ethos, and pathos. Right. Speci- speci- I mean, Adam is not meant to be a specialist, and he knows all the names of the animals. So that's why I actually believe in liberal arts education... And I might be the last person that does. No, but I, no, I, I think there's I, a there's a very, very large, extremely small minority <laughs> that does believe that. Like right. at least seven thousand of us, I would say, yeah, in, the, in the country. There you go. You know, probably more than seven thousand. Um, right. What for? What's that, that? That is all worth. I like that. Academia is guild. Are there other guilds? I mean, you got the American uh, Hollywood, the Actors Association. That's a guild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood works through a variety of guilds, which. Um, I mean, guilds, one reason that they exist is that they're good for workers. Yeah. If you're in the guild, it's much better to be in the guild than, you know, as it were, perpetually freelance. Let's just say, I'm going to jump on that and say, let's just say it's more secure. 
Yeah, uh, totally. You, but I don't, that could be better or worse. So for the entrepreneur, it is worse to be in the guild. Uh, right. For the man who just wants to day labor, it's, it's gold. You know, join Much the guild. Right. So it's, right. And that has a lot to do with your personality, honestly. Right. Uh, so, huh, academia as guild. So then, yeah, the line between guild and mafia is not so far and then so how does is that just institutionalism then too though i mean how well, does it I, guild... I, I mean a, ma a mafia <clears throat> if you want to think of like a, a, a mafia or or a network or an organization that is not completely let's say like let's say it's gray or because it's 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 not white and it might not entirely be black market or right, right. Uh, its organization and its leadership is black, but its activities are gray. Right. 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 When you think of it that way, um, mafia is not wrong because um, uh, it's doing something that, let's say, like a totally above board, a white organization um, is not doing. Right. Um, in fact, uh, a nation state may be engaged in killing far more people on a daily basis than a criminal organization in right. the same country. Right. Right. The issue is the grasp over the levers of power um, and its relationship to that power. So just in kind of like a neutral sense, that, that, that's probably the difference. Again, if you think about Luther, right? Um, Luther grasps onto a new technology that enables him to change minds much faster than remaining inside the guild of uh, Roman Catholic doctors of theology with uh, papally authorized calls to, to teach at universities. So he says, okay, printing, this is why my favorite Luther book is this brand Luther book by Andrew Pettigrew. Oh, really? I've heard that that was good before. Oh, You're the second person to say that. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, because you understand that the unique thing about Luther is his capacity to utilize a new technology. Mm -hmm. that, that's really why Luther and not, you know, Jan Hus or John Wycliffe in England. Right. Sorry, keep going. You can keep going. That. So, I, was, I was finishing so the thought on the. So what he does is he says, "Okay, the guild is fine, but the guild doesn't protect Luther. Ultimately, what protects Luther is the rise of a man, you know, the the, the local power that has power within his political system, on the one hand, and on the other, the fact that he becomes incredibly popular and people are interested in what he has to say. Um, and you can always tell that you're doing well when people just don't, they just irrationally dislike you. That's when you know that you're over the target, uh, because he's publishing. Yeah. And so the guild doesn't actually, it, the guild platforms Luther, but the guild is not why but Luther now, becomes Luther. But now the guild of academia exists to publish. And it, and if I'm not I mean, alone, I, mean, I don't I think mean, I'm alone does, in the complaint. But when is... you're talking about like the relation, you have to think about the relationship between the word public the noun public and the, and the, and the verb publish. Sure. Right? Sure. If I'm, if I'm publishing, but my public is like the other 40 some people who know my topic as well as I do, that is, you might as well just circulate it as a manuscript. You don't. So yeah. why does CTQ get sent to every pass? <laughs> because theoretically, theoretically it is for i would pastors. read if you send it to me as a as a pile of abstracts on the topics i'd read it every time but i go. do not have the time to read that thing yeah and and so if if you exist as academia to publish for somebody and it's not for the people in the pew it's for me right. and i'm just gonna i'm not blaming right. you right. or the system right. i'm just saying like the guild doesn't have to be bad you know it's there for a reason what's it there for yeah. 
You know, yeah, and and yeah. publishing is the thing. And and then that would be what this book, How to Take Smart Notes, his his complaint as well is that the yeah. system itself doesn't know its own system as well as it should. And and that uh, there's yeah. a better path to writing, which I, I, I'll recommend the book fully on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good stuff, Adam. I mean, we're at 1130 now. Um, okay. you, you asked me for an hour. So um, I want to respect your time. <clears throat> yeah, no worries. And uh, uh, God, there's just so much good stuff there. I don't know if there's a way we should conclude by, by trying to tie it to Ezekiel. Um, kind of maybe a preview then. So if, if we see the crisis of the prophet in chapters 1 through 7, which also introduces law and gospel, but not as Camerer would have you do it, as a bunch of terms, although it is in that order, evil of Jerusalem, goodness of the mountains, so it is there. Um, but you have law and gospel as story that has already been going on, that is, is being told to go on further. So then right. preview, like what happens next? Um, so what we're going to what we're going to do next time is the drone tour of the temple and the drone tour reveals horrendous things. It's like when you get those those images of like a disaster happens and then the sun is shining and somebody sends a drone up and then records like you get to see the full extent of the damage. So you're going to do that in the temple. Uh, the glory is going to depart from the temple. And also next time the prophet is going to be forced to act out. Um Israel's captivity, Judah's captivity um, in this specific case. And so we want to talk about stuff like um, how is Ezekiel's body related to Ezekiel's message? And um, why are these pictures made to be displayed in the prophet's body? Why can't, why can't I just talk about it and then hmm. go home at the end of the day and I get to keep my body free from the captivity of the people? Um, so that, that has to do with some of the stuff that we talked about with fleeing to the mountains, but I think it also has to do with uh, how involved do I have to be when I'm a messenger of the gospel? And I think that thinking of being a messenger of the gospel uh, as just like a nine to five job is always a setup for failure, confusion, and disappointment. Right. Because the body is, the whole man is involved in the message that he's given, which is portrayed in many of the prophets as quite literally a burden. <laughs> Yeah, the burden of the Lord, which right. actually becomes a phrase that then gets turned into an idol, too, in the same book. Or is that in <laughs> Jeremiah? It's in Jeremiah that it's an idol. Um, Dan, so, Car Dan Carlin yeah, in um, uh, Hardcore History is doing—his most recent series is called uh, Tsunami in the East, and it's World War II, but from Japan. And it goes deep into the history of Japan. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And he, he quotes someone about the Japanese— but they weren't talking about the Japanese. They were talking about the Jews. But it, he says it applies. And it's true. And it is. And I keep finding, you know what? This applies a lot. Um, he says, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do it with the Japanese. The Japanese are just like everybody else, only more so. And <laughs> there, there, you, know, you, could, you could use that well. Um, yeah. But the pastor is a Christian. Right. Only more so. And it doesn't mean that you're not as much if you're not a pastor. But like... It's not a job. Being a Christian is not a nine to five thing. It's not a Sunday morning thing. No. It is an identity that, like we've talked about, pathos, logos, ethos. It, 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 it is all of those things redeemed and tuned to a different song than the rest of the world is singing. Um, and uh, so to, to think that whether you're a pastor or a, or, or a lay person, that somehow we can kind of put any of what we believe in a corner ever. Right. Is just is just ludicrous, and what we see that we don't like about our structures is an in, 
uh, several decades at least of cornering things because we were concerned it might damage us if we let them out. And I think in some ways we should have just let them run and see what happened. Um, you know, what would it look like if we didn't have women's suffrage as a church body? I mean, it would be weird. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right? Um, but it yeah. would be really different and, and maybe good. I don't know. So you've got to let, let some of those dogs out again. But you also got to recognize that your, your task, Christian or pastor, you used balance earlier, uh, Adam, but it, it is your task is never to figure out which words to hide or tell, but to just have the words be there when they're there and then say them again as often as you can and not worry too much about how you're going to apply them. Now, don't get me wrong. The pastor must apply the art of all, all gospel. You know, don't just randomly shoot stuff out of your mouth. But don't worry so much about how you're going to figure out the right time and place for doing this and that and that and that. Instead, you have to have to love what it is. It has to be who you are. If you yeah. if you cheer, for, I, I, I'll give another story. We're going over time, but I, I, my wife put together a real cool little birthday celebration for me, where she um, encouraged a couple of people that you could call fans or followers or what have you, friends, to just send me t-shirts. And I got a, I got five or six t-shirts out of it, and all of them are awesome. They're like Second Amendment t-shirts with flags on them and things. I love them. But then last night I got another one. It was from a member at church. And I don't know how they got connected, but they gave me a t-shirt too. And I've opened it at dinner. And it was a Portland Trailblazers t-shirt. And I loved every t-shirt I got, but that is the only one that I stood up. I took off my shirt and I put it on at the dinner table. I took a picture <laughs> and I texted them immediately. Because I love the Portland Trailblazers. Like there is yeah. no part of me. It doesn't matter what happens, how bad they are. I can't get it out of me. Christianity should be kind of like that. It should be kind of like that. Like, like yeah. it, there's just, yeah. it, wherever it shows up, that's the thing that really matters. You can't put that in nine to five. You can't clock out. The, the assembly line doesn't make it happen. So much of our viewpoint, I mean, we, we've talked through this hour and a half about uh, agrarianism. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not about just going back to the land. We talked about being in the mountains and suffering and letting things pass. That's a, that's a big part of it. Um, yeah. I don't want to make it sound like we have to go somewhere. We're already there. He's one. Yeah. You put, can you put a bow on all that? I think the thing that has to change is that we give up on, on this anxiety about fitting in, yes. which always comes off as so hokey when we try to present the gospel or we try to convey that we love or that we care. People are persuasive and winning and credible and interesting and people follow them into the wilderness because they're not trying to be loved. They simply are who they are. And uh, what baptism is intended to give you is that intense sense of stability mm. and wholeness so that you're anchoring who you are, where, whether you live, you know, in the middle of the plains or in the mountains or anywhere, uh, you're anchored in Christ. And so you don't come off, right? That logos has its own ethos and pathos. You don't come off as somebody who is desperate, um, who is needy. Uh, because what you have, you've, you're being provided, the ravens are feeding you in the wilderness. Right? Um, so you're not a person who is walking around needing things from others. Uh, that doesn't make for an easy life necessarily, but it does make for a life that has integrity hmm. um, and that is whole and that is, uh, in the best sense of the word, balanced. Integrity, character, confidence, all built on the foundation of grace and a substance of trust. Uh, that is supernatural and given. Um, in this here episode with uh, Doctor, you doctor yet? Yes. Yes, sir. They doctored That's you right. for reals. It's a bit. I'm in. I'm in the guild, man. Have you published three books? 
<laughs> I want you no. to. I want you to. You should. You. It would be. It would be a blessing to the church. Um. In, in, thanks, Adam Kuntz, for joining me just to yeah, chat and throw this out as, as bonus content. We're gonna keep it behind the Patreon paywall for a couple of days, and then it'll go out after that. And uh, we're gonna title it just so you know, uh, Doctor Kuntz. You brought it all up. West Virginia, the mafia, and fitting in in 2020. Well, I I I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's great stuff. Uh, always good to chat. Let's try to do this again in a couple of weeks. 